Boom, 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 cling, boom, boom, boom. Elliot Kalen, it's me, John Hodgman. Hi, John Hodgman. I'm Elliot Kalen. And here we are, trapped once more, imprisoned together, in Bee Potting You, a, a short podcast about some of the episodes of the famous 1967-1968 British science fiction television program, The Prisoner, starring and created by Patrick McGuhan. Elliot, would you call... I was looking I was looking at a lot of Wikipedia pages today. Mm-hmm. Because it occurred to me that we're recording our, la- our final episodes. Oh. <laughs> leaving the door open. <laughs> I'm leaving the door open. Today... And uh, I did not, there's a lot of work that I did not do. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I feel like I did, I did work. So okay. maybe, maybe I can keep the work average up, even if, even if you did not do so much. Like, I realized that I should have read by now the comic book Shattered Visage, which is the continuation comic that was written or illustrated by Dean Motter mm-hmm. uh, that came out in the... 90s i want to say it's like the late 80s early 90s yeah yeah um, and there was another one that came out later i th- you know what i think I, I think those are not necessarily i haven't read i haven't read it either and the thing that's been keeping me from it is that unlike uh, other continuable ip i feel like the prisoner is such a product of patrick McGowan's brain and yeah. his particular obsessions and neuroses and fascinations that kind of I'm not that interested in other people's take on it. The same way that I wouldn't, if someone was like, hey, did you know uh, they did a, a sequel to Le Demoiselles d'Avignon where those those crazy misshapen prostitutes are having a different adventure? I'd be like, I don't need to, I, that's kind of Picasso's thing. I don't need to see someone else's continuation of their, of that painting. You know, oh, hey, did you, do you hear they did Guernica too? Yeah, yeah, Quentin Tarantino did it. Okay, I don't, it's not really what I'm in for. I feel like The Prisoner to me is kind of like a single closed set. Sorry. But I, 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 I heard most of that. It's just, I just, uh, right after you said, uh, Guernica to Quentin Tarantino, I just saw that it got picked up by Netflix. Oh no. Yeah. Why am I giving these ideas away? <laughs> yeah. Cause they're listening to the zooms. They're looking for ideas. Oh no. Immediately went straight to deadline.com. <laughs> but Quentin Tarantino doesn't even know yet. We know oh, before he's Quentin be so Tarantino angry. Knows. Yeah. But he's got to do it. He's got to do it. Netflix says. Has to. It's been announced. But in fact, the so by the way, the, the Shattered Visage uh, came out in 1988. Mm-hmm. And it was illustrated uh, by Dean Motter, uh, who's a comic book illustrator I like, uh, and created that Mr. X that I liked very much. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it was written by Dean Motter and Mark Asquith. And I was very surprised by how much prisoner product is on the market. How much non-Magoodhan... And I'm going to keep saying Maguhan. It probably it's not how re- he pr- pronounced it, but that's okay. <laughs> it would really annoy him. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It would really annoy him. But I mean, the guy just seems annoyed all the time anyway. Yeah. You know, Maguhan. I'll be respectful. I was, I was, re- for research for these episodes, I watched a long interview he did for Canadian television in the 70s. And oh. he seems like such a strange man. Just a, it may have been that how he was feeling that day or that it's a very awkward uh, situation he's in where he's kind of being interviewed on set by a very low energy man in front of a very low energy audience. But McGowan just seems to be existing in his own universe that he occasionally dips out of in order to address the question. 
I think that it, I, you know, maybe he was having a bad day, but I think that it's fair to say that anyone who wrote and directed the two-part finale to The Prisoner, consisting of Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. and then Fallout, two separate episodes. Anyone, anyone who thought, thought those things up in his brain is a weirdo. <laughs> But I, so not only was there Shattered, Shattered Visage, but also an Apple II computer game by Edgeware that came out in 1980 that was very popular. I'd never heard of it. Mm, I don't know that one either. There, there is a more recent uh, comic book adaptation, but there, there were prisoner novels as soon as the thing came out. Yes, that I had not known about. Thomas M. Dish wrote a book called The Prisoner, later republished as I Am Not a Number in 1969. Picking up where the end of this series left off, where he's brainwashed to forget his original experience in the village, according to Wikipedia, and and lives with that little butler in his old house. Yeah, and and Thomas Dish, I haven't read it. Tom, actually, that's one I might read because Thomas Dish seems like a perfect matchup of author and this property. Why? Well, uh, having read person. some, of, he's, I've read some of his other books. He had a book called uh, Camp Concentration, and another one called uh, It's either Three Three Six or Three Three Four. I've read a bunch of his books, but he he would be a good matchup for it. But it does seem strange that right away. But you never it remind. But it reminds me of. I mean, this is it was a different era. uh, But it reminds me of the Deluge of Dune products that came out in the nineteen eighties when they were like, "This is the next Star Wars." There's a coloring book now for Dune. Like there's you never there's always someone who um, I have them. They're right over my shoulder. I have them. (laughs) Oh, they're they're kabonkers. Yeah, and uh, you, you don't want to give a coloring book, a Dune coloring book, to your child, and like, hey, do you want to, do you want to connect the dots and color this floating, f- this floating phallic alien in a tank full of hallucinogenic gas? Or like, how, what color do I use for the pustules on Baron Harkonnen's face? This, uh, <laughs> there and, literally, there literally is a picture of Baron Harkonnen having one of his pustules stabbed with a little pin. It's like color, <laughs> color it in. Color the pus. Yeah, bonkers. Uh, I think there's there's always uh, it it shows you I guess that there's no creative vision too uh, too unique that it can't in the in the in the media world at least that can't become kind of like grist for for corporate merchandising. Yeah, but, but even they, back then it was it was pretty much novels were the only uh, novels and comic book adaptations were the only way they kind of did that back then for the most part. Right, and of course there was famously a proposed comic book adaptation that uh jack kirby did a lot of art for that never yes. was never completed and published yeah another and another one actually that would have been a, a a fun matchup because i feel like jack kirby and patrick McGowan are a similar wavelength in a lot of ways and that yeah. they are full of, of person yeah a couple of weirds full of personal philosophy that has a lot of intensity and punching in it and they and they have to express it in their work and they never quite express it at the height that uh that it makes total sense. <laughs> right. But you can kind of like, you get the gist of it after a while. That's right. I had forgotten about that Jack Kirby prisoner comic. I remember seeing some of those images in uh, the Jack Kirby collector. Yeah. When Jack Kirby was left unfettered as Patrick McGuhan was left unfettered, particularly in these last two episodes, it was really an, it was really an incredible sort of uh, window into a very, and I will say this and don't send me letters, a very unique mind. You can say very unique now. That is accepted. Check Merriam-Webster. Okay. People understand that unique does not just mean there's only one thing. It also means unusual. Mm-hmm. But just to get the haters to put down their email <laughs> quills, when you when you see episodes of The Prisoner like Once Upon a Time and Fallout, when you, when you read 
Jack Kirby's unedited stuff for his fourth world. Stuff. Where he was and, editing it. Yeah. Well, well, he was editing it, but th- there was no, there was no other hand yeah. when he was writing about the worlds of apocalypse and new except, Genesis. Except the so hand forth. that was redrawing Superman's head in every page of Jimmy Olsen because <laughs> yeah, it didn't well, look enough like the DC house style, but otherwise, yeah, no other hand. Yeah. When he had his own, when he was doing the forever people. Yes. And was off the chain. Both were windows into uniquely creative and unusual minds. Once you look through those windows for a little while, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm going to pull the shade down now. You need some, (laughs) you need some privacy. Well, I think partly because of the, the, the the force and the intensity of it in that. And uh, like, would I want to watch multiple seasons of the prisoner that were all at this level? I don't think I'd be able to handle it, but there's something I ha- I want to I want to try to imagine. I couldn't even watch all the episodes of this season. <laughs> well, and he, well, here's the thing is that so this this show up until this point it is a kind of weird, kind of strange spy show with a science fiction edge, and he's trying to escape, and he, every episode he can't quite escape, and right. some episodes are a little weirder than others, and then suddenly these two episodes hit, and they launch the series into such a stranger and more abstract and conceptual. At like allegorical mode, and so I have to wonder. And I, th- you know, you hear. Um, we had talked, I think, in a previous episode about an interview that Alan Moore ta- did, where he talks about how it opened his mind. This show, yes. when he watched it as a young man, and I, I have to imagine part of that was the setup of weird spy show, weird spy show, weird spy show. What? Yeah. Like, like it's as if Star Trek, which was di- very different for its time, but it was, you know, it's a science fiction show. Each each episode, they right. have a different thing. If in the last two episodes of Star Trek, space turned inside out and they traveled through time to marry their own babies and, you know, and they realized that they were each individual gods who could create parallel universes with their thoughts and, and change all of physics. Like, I feel like that's the equivalent. Like, I, have to go I don't even far. think, I mean, with great respect, I'm not even sure that a, that no, gets I think, at and that's, just that's, the strangeness of that's these failing two to get it across. Yeah, I was and, I watched I watched these episodes with my wife, and the part she kind of fell asleep at a certain point. But but the this the first of these two, once upon a time, she was like, I feel like I'm watching theater. I feel like I'm watching the kind of stuff I used to go see in college, like experimental oh, yes. theater, and it yeah. feels very much like that. But on television, oh yeah, this is a little bit of uh, Harold Pinter cosplay, particularly Once Upon a Time. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's very yeah. experimental British West End theater. Yeah. In a lot of ways that we'll discuss in a moment. But I, I just want to circle back to Dune for a second because I always want to circle back to Dune. Oh, because it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Circling back is one of the ways that the Fremen hide their numbers when they're marching through the sand. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's the Tuscan Raiders. Anyway, the Tuscan Raiders march single file. Single file to hide, to hide their numbers. numbers yeah. Whatever. Circling back. I just made that up. <laughs> Oh, but they got to do that weird stutter step. They so got a side. Not, they got to dance on the sand. They got to dance like they Rio. Sand, a little sand dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're like this Rio is not dancing a Dune on the podcast. sand. It should be, but it's not. <laughs> it should, we got, well. We should probably do a Dune podcast at some point. But we should do maybe a Dune. We should definitely yeah. do a Dune. Oh, it's gonna be. We called, should call it. We call it Pod is the Mind Killer. I was gonna say, let's do a Dune. <laughs> let's do a Dune. <laughs> but Pod is the Mind Killer. Pod is the Mindcaster. Yeah, Pod is the Mindcaster. Pod is the Mindcaster. <laughs> It is the it is the little death that obliterates everything. Isn't that the truth? Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> respectfully, the merchant the merchandise that got spawned off of Dune was very much designed to capture the sales potential that was on the, the revealed to the world of the merchandise that accompanied Star Wars. The difference is there was no Star Wars when the Prisoner was made. There were no action figures. There were no 
ancillary, but I think that you're you're more on the money when you observe that there was no for a lot of people there was no way to experience this story again except through a comic book adaptation yeah and just like a lot of movies like novelization but what was interesting to me especially was the jack kirby was going to be an adaptation of arrival the first episode and then go on from there but these books that came out right away the thomas dish book i am not a number there's a david mcdaniel book that came out right after that called the prisoner number two and then this guy roger langley in the 80s wrote three novellas based on the series that were only available in the port marion gift shop (laughs) but in particular the prisoner i am not a number which picks up exactly where this thing where, where fallout leaves off I think really spoke to the mania. I use that term advisedly. The mania surrounding the prisoner by the time it ended. It was very, I didn't appreciate it, just what a social, what a cultural moment it was for this show, or maybe I should say countercultural moment. That like people were following this the way people followed Lost. Yeah, people really wanted to know who number one, and this was, this was back when there were, what three channels in England yeah. I think at the time it was like BBC right. One and BBC Two and ITV and uh, this was like there was not a lot of it was you know the way that um, uh, people talk about like the last episode of MASH you know right. like this wasn't quite the same because it wasn't broadcast on the same day in each region it was kind of broadcast at, at, at different right. dates in different places different, but different sa- date like a th- February something in Scotland and then February something plus two in London and whatever. Yeah. But it was, but yeah, it was, people really were following it. Like, I can't wait to find out who number one's going to be. This is going to yeah. be amazing. Like, people are really into it. A and B much like lost created by B potting. You contributor, David Lindelof. This was a hard series to stick the landing to. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of pressure to conclude the series in a satisfying way. And there was also in particular on the prisoner, there was a lot of external pressures and time frames that made like, he had to write this very quickly. He had to come up with an ending very quickly. Yeah, well, and there was also there was a big there was a big gap between the shooting of Once Upon a Time and the shooting of Fallout. It was a uh, year between them. Yeah, because he was I think it was when he was going off to shoot Ice Station Zebra. I think was part of that time. Right. Uh, you would not is, think this really took me by surprise. And maybe we should talk about it when we finish talking about Once Upon a Time because I'm going to set us up to talk about Once Upon a Time now. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Which is that when, <laughs> when this phantasmagoric, psychedelic, surreal, weird doubleheader finally aired, people were confused and upset <laughs> and like went to his house. Like he, he, they literally went to his house to protest because it had such an ambivalent strange two-part ending in particular fallout which we'll talk about in a little bit yeah and it's no wonder that immediately people were stepping in to try to fill in the gaps and explain what it all meant and i think that to my surprise like i had said that i had maybe never seen these episodes before Mm -hmm. i know that i tried to watch them before but in particular, Fallout, I feel like I must have fallen asleep just out of sheer self psychic self-protection. <laughs> like my, my brain can't handle this. 
because I remembered a lot of Once Upon a Time, mm-hmm. but Fallout was completely different from what I remembered really? it to be. And what it is culturally sort of understood to be, which was this, you know, completely esoteric, inscrutable bit of surrealist blah dee I'll tell you how I felt about it when we get to it. But I completely understand why people were so intent upon rationalizing this yeah. thing, which ultimately I think Patrick McGowan himself was intent on maintaining it to be completely irrational, like outside of rational bounds, purely allegorical. There's no explaining it. Out of out of rational bounds in terms of narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're saying. Because there is, because watching it again, I feel like I've seen both these episodes at least three times before this, but watching it now, this was the time, and maybe it's because of where I am in my life that it felt like there were things about it that were speaking directly to me. I felt like I understood these two episodes much better than I ever had before. And even though narratively... They're very strange and irrational. I felt like on an allegorical level, I was finally like, oh, I think I, under- I understand what this means to me now. I don't know if it's necessarily what Patrick McGowan was intending, but this uh, there's a meaning in this that I'm picking up that I didn't pick up before. To me, it was the high and the low of the series. Both episodes are really, really interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. One of them, to me, embodied the tediousness of this show at its most tedious uh-huh. It's sophomoric, philosophical, tiresome self-regard. And the other one I found to be utterly transcendent and absolutely surprising mm-hmm. in how much it affected me. And, you know, maybe we'll do a poll. <laughs> see if people <laughs> we'll can guess which one I liked better. All right. But, but they the have one to we're get gonna... it in before the end of the episode, because I assume you're going to tell us by the end of the episode. <laughs> but here we are together now. Trapped once again in the embryo room. What's happening in this episode, Elliot? I'd love to tell you. Once upon a time, it starts out with our regular opening titles, recapping how we got to the to this concept. It's the last time we're going to see them in the series. Spoiler alert. Uh, we're, we're back at the Green Dome where number two uh, works and lives too, I guess. And our, our uh, small butler, played by Angelo Muscat, he comes out, he sets out tea, he pushes buttons to set up the chairs, and who rises out of the floor uh, front, on a little rising platform? But number two from the Chimes of Big Ben, Leo McKern, we yeah. haven't seen him for episodes and episodes. And Not he's the back. new number two. Now we no, have no. the old number two. <laughs> the old number two. Uh, and he gets he's instantly kind of tense and anxious, and he says, remove yeah. all this, except for the coffee. And his chair has kind of like a rover ball in it. Yes. And he barks over the phone. You brought me back here. I told you the last time you were using the wrong approach. I do it my way, or you find somebody else. I feel like this is the most uh, traditionally mysterious the show has been, where this a regular TV show or movie could start like this, where someone's kind of hinting at a thing that's going on and we'll find out later, you know, right. as opposed to allegorical mysterious. And uh, he starts watching a feed of uh, a television feed of number six at home, like he used to do in the old episode, <laughs> just watching closed circuit video of him at home. And... There's a very, it's shot in a very strange way where he walks in front of this screen. So at times he and six are the same size uh, and at times they're not. It's almost like he's trying to inhabit the space number six is in and he keeps asking number six, why do you care? Why do you care? And number six yeah. uh, talks to number two on the phone and number two is taunting him. And anyway, was there uh, any, we're reestablishing the relationship. Yeah. And are we establishing a pattern of uh, repeating the same line over and over and over again to pad out the script? <laughs> Possibly. There's yeah. a lot of repetition. 
Well, the, and we'll see that. Uh, well, the idea of this episode is it is a a battle of wills, a battle of psyches between two men where they're trying to wear each other down. But by the end of the episode, the wearing down is done off of the repetition. Yeah, there's a scene that comes after that. That hang on, before we move on to that scene, I just want okay. to say when that egg chair, and you know how much I love an egg chair, mm-hmm. and I, you know how much I love uh, breakfast food. The fact that Leo McKern or all the number twos are constantly sitting in their egg chairs eating eggs. <laughs> I mean, this is a life for me. Hi, diddly D. This is what I want. I want to dress like a Doctor Who, sit in a modern egg chair, and and have a, a butler bring me a breakfast every morning. If only you could combine that with being exiled to a tropical island or to a to a Mediterranean island, as Look, you I'm express on... your love of in in our iPodius series. <laughs> I'm on record, and and I went in some length about this when I talked to Damon Lindelof. It's like, put me on the, I'll go, I'll go on the island. He doesn't want to be there. Trade. I'll go. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go on the island. But I was gonna say, so uh, when that egg chair turned around and there was a rover in it, mm-hmm. I audibly gasped. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a disturbing image. Yeah. And such an interesting announcement. Like, this is not the prisoner that you remember. And Leo McKern, you know, I love him as, as number two. He is so out of sorts and so upset. All of a sudden, this is very, a show that is already built on destabilizing your expectations. This is particularly destabilizing. Yes, and right off the bat, Leo McKern is, I mean, the, the theme is right there. Like, number two... He says, I am not an inmate here. And then it almost immediately steps into the screen, as you say, essentially is observing number six, but is inhabiting the same space. He is just as much a prisoner as number six. He is under enormous pressure to crack this case and he's going to put himself at risk. And ultimately, as you point out, he's go- it's going to be a battle of wills distinctly between the two of them where they both become a prisoner in this one room, this weird, weird room in the bowels of the village called the embryo room. And the duality of them is the whole point of this whole episode. But is there anything, Elliot, I want to ask you because you're more familiar with the episodes between the second episode and this penultimate episode. (laughs) Is there anything setting any of this up? Uh, You get only, only the tiniest little feeling hints that like, you know that there's a number one at the top. You know that the right. number twos keep changing. And so there's a sense of like number two is a job that you don't last long in. And in one of the epi- one of my episodes that I like a lot, Free For All, which I think of as one of the early episodes, uh, but you know, there's no official order, uh, number six runs for the office of number two. And uh, although it turns out, as always, to be a to be a big ho- a big prank on him. It's he got pranked with that one. But there's there's nothing I think that gets to this level of anxiety and hostility on the part of the people in who are ostensibly in charge in the right. village. Up to this point, we've really established that number six is an agitated individual. The number twos are, for the most part, different different tones of either serene or arrogant or smug or overconfident. And by the end, as the season goes on, Number six kind of guy, he never escapes during those episodes, but he gets under the skin of some of the number twos and he becomes more confident. But right. there's there's nothing nothing to hint at the idea that like number two is under threat of a, of a rovering if he's, you know, or that number two is feeling as as trapped as number six is. There's always a feeling yeah. that, that whoever's number two is at a high enough level that they're complicit or they're part of it and not that they are 
living with this. But there's something about it that's very um, like Soviet about it, where in the Soviet system, everybody was kind of afraid of the person above them. And it seems like no matter how far up you went, you were afraid of somebody above you. Sure. You doing one wrong thing and then just getting rid of you. you know, but when we, saw, when we saw number two in the Chimes of Big Ben, he intimated that he himself might have been a prisoner there once. Yes. But then he, be, but then he learned to play along and give information and fall in formation. Yeah. And, uh, and enjoyed, enjoyed the perks of his status. Egg chair with eggs. He, no one loved him more than Leo. <laughs> but in this one, it's like, it's almost upsetting how agitated he is that he has been yes. pulled back from exile. And the mission, it would seem now as he's talking to his mysterious, whoever is on the other side of that futuristic telephone mm-hmm. is not just to get information and get, the prisoner to fall in formation. But he's also, he says, you must risk either one of us. I am good, but he will be better. There's now the suggestion that the mission is to turn, we'll call him number six, because we, we, I know so we never know his name. I know he's not a number. I know he's a free man. You remind us every time, Patrick McGowan. He's, he's a Fremen, yeah. as in Dune. Right. Let's not do a Dune. Let's not do a Dune. <laughs> But it's like there's already there's this this setup that I think pays off wonderfully over the course of these two episodes. The, the mission is not merely to get this answer to the question, why did you resign? But to break number six and bring him on board to the to the village's mission. Yes. And that in order for that to happen, number two is going to probably have to sacrifice himself by calling for this treatment called degree absolute there's something in his performance that is frightening in the way that you go to bed as a kid and you walk downstairs and you see your parents fighting or you see your dad looking at a pile of bills incredibly nervous and you're like what's going on here in the same way that and it's there's something comforting about a very confident evil but there's something very frightening about a very anxious evil like what like the idea of richard nixon as this kind of like you know, cruel criminal warmonger is so much less so much less frightening than him as this shaky, agitated man, S- sweaty, who's neurotic, sweaty, and not in control and afraid right. of of what's happening. So seeing it's a it's a real shock to the system to see this. So uh, he's got a rover in his egg chair. He can't yeah, even sit down. No, he can't even, he can't sit, even sit normally down. Normally that egg chair circles around and there's number two sitting there going. <laughs> now it's his rover going. <laughs> it's like you know, you sit down on a rover, you're going to get roved. That's mm-hmm. no fun. He Rover's can't even gotta sit down. Get, Rover's gonna rove. Hey, hate, hate the game, not the rove. Uh, so, uh, hate, hate the, rove, the rover, not the, rover. Not the rove. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, six. Meanwhile, is going around bothering people, asking them what their numbers are, and it's and trying to guess them. It's a little short scene that doesn't really make any sense. And uh, two says he's he's gonna do degree absolute. He has one week to do this, and they they manage to uh, use a. a the lamp above number six's bed as he's sleeping, it lowers down onto his head and pulses. And, uh, so first, first he goes into the supervisor's room, which has the, the seas- the one of three seesaws in this <laughs> double episode. Yeah. And this, this is, is and, the uh, seesaw that we're very familiar with. This is the, the, sur- the rotating seesaw surveillance machine. Yes. You- in the room as the same room as the guy who always says orange alert yes, whenever exactly. Rover has to be released. Yeah. And that bald dude is called the supervisor. Yeah. And uh, and the the two dudes who are on the rotating surveillance seesaw, as I say, there are a number of seesaws that come up in these two episodes, but this is one that we've seen many a time. And I finally figured out why it's so unnerving to me, because it is, on the one hand, it's just weird looking. 
yeah. and seems to serve no purpose. But also these two dudes are tethered together, which is a big theme of this whole episode mm-hmm. in particular. Like in a, in a whole, in a show that is all about what does it mean to be an individual versus what does it mean to conform to a society? Two people who are essentially mechanically tethered together the same way that mouse was uh, connected to the back of that nude cat in David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> it's just, it feels unnatural and weird. All, all roads lead way. to Dune. Yeah. yeah. But uh, that's where, I, that's where he goes in and he's like, it's a very strange scene where number two sends everyone out of the room and he and the supervisor tune in on a sleeping number six and go, now begin the, tr- what, oh, what does he say? It's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's the closest the show really gets to techno jargon. Yeah. It's really like this. And this is the scene that most feels like padding to me, uh, where it's like science stuff, science stuff, made up science stuff, because what we really want to get to is the, is number two and number six in, uh, in their new relationship. Right. He goes, he says to, he's, he's honed in on number six as he sleeps on the, on the video screen and number two yells, blow up channel three, check profundity. (laughs) And then the supervisor starts counting from one to six and McGoohan's getting really agitated. And then they, they hold on five. And then number two goes over to number six's apartment as he sleeps. And as you say, he lowers this mid-century modern lamp onto his face, which is some yeah, kind and, of mind and, wipe. And two sits there re- reciting nursery rhymes. Uh, well, six sleeps. And in the morning, number two is all worn out, worn out and he takes the lamp off of six's face and six wakes up. And from that moment... Six is acting like a little kid, and they actually wheel him back into Number Two's office eating an ice cream cone, which is such mm. a funny image to me. One of the I think most it's disgusting so funny. things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's just, just the this that there's no there's no way at all to look rebellious or like cool while eating <laughs> eating an ice cream. Patrick McGowan acting acting childlike while slurping on a cone. <laughs> so gross, especially when you consider that probably at this time in England. Most ice cream was still non-dairy and being made with lard. I think oh, that's yeah. a thing that happened, right? I probably. I mean, yeah. I assume that it, this close to World War II, the ice cream was probably still being made out of chalk and rubble that they <laughs> that they just made cold. Uh, now, wait a minute. I just want. I don't want to. There's a couple of things. I don't want to skip over the fact that they're using this lamp as a mind control device. Mm-hmm. One because it's like, why didn't you use this to start out with? It was in his apartment already. <laughs> Two, it's a very creepy image having this lamp just be lowered onto this per- onto a person's face. Yeah, and then I don't know whether that's Patrick McGowan or a stunt double or a, or a dummy, just like lying on that bed with the lamp on his face while number two recites these nursery rhymes. But that's got to be hot. I've been in some <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah, that's I got true. wrapped up. I got wrapped up in bubble wrap for a Mac versus PC ad. And it was probably potentially lethal to me. Really? There was no, it was, I got so hot and there was no breathability at all. Having a light bulb in your face for minutes on end. I mean, what, what, what's the, what's the, what's the toy, uh, the toy oven where you make those little cakes? Easy bake oven? Easy bake oven. Yeah. That's like putting his head in an easy bake oven. Yeah. That's like the Sylvia Plath for kids. <laughs> <laughs> But note that the nursery rhymes, uh, there are three, uh, Humpty Dumpty, Jack and Jill, and, and Duke of York, mm-hmm. that, that are recited in this scene, which also feels like padding to me, to be honest. 
but they all they're all part of an episode called Once Upon a Time. It's titled with the beginning of a nursery rhyme. They are going to go to a nursery, this embryo room. And all of these nursery rhymes won't, you know, I'm sure everyone noticed are about people getting broken. Mm-hmm. Like Humpty Dumpty falling and being broken. Yeah, and Jack and Jack, Jill breaking breaking their crown and yeah. Jack and down. Jill breaking up after years of a loveless marriage. <laughs> uh, I uh, assume they were brother and sister. <laughs> well, I never read it that way. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And the Duke of York marching up the hill and then marching down again. That's less broken. But it, as he's but the, but the futility of it and the, the, and the cyclical nature of that. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, number two seems pretty broken himself in these scenes. And I don't like seeing him with his jacket off, honestly. That's a tight <laughs> turtleneck. Leo McKern had, a, had an interestingly shaped body and obviously wasn't ashamed of it. More power to him. But I, I would feel self-conscious. I don't, I, I'd rather have a, as an actor, I'd rather have a light, a, a mid-century modern lamp burning my face off than have to wear a tight turtleneck for as long as... <laughs> with no jacket li- over it. With no jacket for as long as Leo McKern was on, yeah. on the camera for that scene. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, they, they finally end up in, they go beneath number two's office. Right. They wheel, they wheel in. So Patrick McGowan wakes up. And didn't you think that he was putting on an act as a, this? Uh, like he's always, he's always, he always says this ploy where he's like, I'm going to pretend you got me. But when he wakes up and he's all like, goo goo gaga, shall we go for walkies, daddy? I'm like, come on. And <laughs> I then think, he's like I, slurping, slurping that ice cream so I mean, hard. maybe it's possible that the whole episode he is, he is putting on a ploy, but I don't think so. I think that there's, if there's any, if there's to be any real stakes in this episode, it's that. This is the, the reason they haven't done this before is it's so incredibly dangerous to his psyche. It could risk making him unusable. Right. And so that he's not putting on an act. They have really hypnotized him back into a childhood state, uh, but they haven't done it before because it's so dangerous. And this is their, okay. this is their last resort, you know. Uh, so they go, they go into the bowels of the village and they go into this super duper creepy room. Into the embryo room, as you've, as you've mentioned before. And it took, it, was, it wasn't, it was creepy before I knew it was called the embryo room. <laughs> yeah. Cause I don't think they call it that in the, in the show. Do they? They do. They, they do? Oh, a little I, later I on in the episode, once they're both starting to crack, when number two is explaining to number six, the methodology of degree absolute. Oh, okay. Two, he says, look at this. It that. is the embryo room. So the uh, oh, so the, it's, to, des- to, to describe it, it's like a black box theater that uh-huh. has like a nursery and a schoolroom in it, yep. and they'll be locked in there for one week. They put a timer on the door on the steel door. Right, uh, they'll be locked in there for one week. They can't get out. Number two and the butler put on very weird sunglasses that are kind of like wooden visors with slits in yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, they look like there's look- a, there's an old science fiction movie uh, where aliens wear glasses that look just like that. I can't remember the name of it. Um, they kind but of they look also ridiculous. look like the eyes of the Moloids in Marvel Comics. Yes, yeah, the they Mole do. Man's That's a good point. Legion of Underground Helpers, or they could be in Devo. Like it, it's that yeah. kind of look too. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so basically, degree absolute to put a to put a, uh, a summary on it is number two is going to kind of lead number six through the stages of life as he of him growing up right with number two pretending to be different authority figures in different relationships and the idea is as he puts on he writes it on a chalkboard one or a find missing link b repair link or if i fail c bang <laughs> which <laughs> is not fully defined but it's that something bad's going to happen if he does if he fails to fix number six in the way that will turn number six into a conforming functioning member of the village right 
and and may, maybe even replace number two as the new yes, number two. Yes, and maybe even replace number two. Or which, the new number one. Who knows? Yeah. Mm. You don't eat. Mm-hmm. Uh. And so, so they go through this elaborate kind of role play therapy. And first, number two is his dad. And they ride a seesaw together. And they do word association. Yes. Then number two is a headmaster. And six is the student who refuses to rat out, rat out another student. And each of these each of these situations eventually gets to a point where... He's asking number six to confess something. And number two does a real – he gives him a real we live in a society speech uh, right. way, way before that was, that was a meme. Um, but, and it ends with number six being caned, which, you know, was British school stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, camera. honestly, if I were – if I were a relatively well-educated man, white man in England at this time, this would be the worst possible torture because <laughs> everything I know about – those English prep schools are, this is just a place where you are humiliated and violated consistently and hurt. Yes. So the idea that you would make Patrick McGowan go through a prep school education, <laughs> I was, I can, I, I'm surprised he didn't break. I was willing to break. No, he does. He gets but to graduation. You, you did mention that first, first he's got to, he's got to be in that, in that playpen, which is a kind of cage. Yes. Then he's got to get on, he's got to go to the, got to take walkies to the fake uh, playground during his regress, regression to childhood. And he's got to get on that seesaw, on seesaw. with number two, num- an- another seesaw. Yeah. N- now he got two seesaws. And the seesaw, it's a nice, it's also a nice visual metaphor for the idea of a battle of wills, that one can be up only when the other is down and vice versa. Like right. you can't, you can never sit evenly on a seesaw or you're not really using it. Yes, you know? I hadn't thought about that. That's exactly right. And they're not only seesawing between who's on top and who's, you know, who's in control and who's not in control. But they, McKern, number two, for the most part, is playing authority figures. Yes. Right? You mentioned, uh, obviously, a teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. And then a boss uh, at, at a bank. And then a judge. And later a commanding officer as they are pretending to fly around on that two by four. <laughs> Yeah, they're sitting on a sawhorse, basically pretending they're flying a plane. Well, the poor butler has to like make sound effects and rattle the two before <laughs> yeah. to make it seem like they're in a plane, and he's like blowing smoke almost <laughs> literally up their butts <laughs> to indicate clouds or the smoke or the fog of war. Who knows? I'm I was like, that so. So the butler, he's so he's the only other actor, as far as I know, who is in I think all the episodes, in addition to Patrick McGowan. And so his he's his name is Angela Muscat, and apparently. Uh, years later, he ended up in poverty and and did not have a successful acting career for long. But in this Patrick McGowan interview that I saw from the seventies, they bring him up. They bring up the butler, and he goes, "Oh, Angelo, what a sweet man! What a sweet, sweet man!" And he just says that he has has this look in his eye, and it just it makes me wonder what he was like because he has no lines in any of the series. You know, yeah, you have no but... sense of his personality. But but that it, that it's the only other actor that I think comes up in that interview. The only one that he mentions. Angelo Muscat as the butler was a revelation to me in these two episodes mm-hmm. for reasons that we'll get into. I don't want to spoil anything, but in this, in this whole, like he's doing so much acting without a single line. Yes. And you are watching him process what's happening and react to it and have opinions about it that you've never seen him do in any of the other episodes. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, obviously kudos to the actor for being so good, but also like, I feel for this character like when they go into this thing, it's basically like two men go in, one man comes out, and the butt was like, 
uh, I'm here too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the fact that, that he's like, that number two says number six, one week, neither of us will leave. And it's like, <laughs> uh, your butler is also there. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to be here blow, you know, protect, making war sounds and like being part of your weird pantomimes. I'm stuck in here with you too. That he's got to stand by while number two changes number six's diaper because they're in there for a week and he's a baby uh, now. And- <laughs> That never comes up on camera, but... But one uh, of the things that I found a little unbalanced in the seesawing of themes here was that not only... Most of the time, Leo McKern is presenting as the authority figure, mm -hmm. but at the same time, he is presenting as as number six's lover. When they go in, it's the... Into the embryo room, the language is that of a marriage. Like, we are going in here for better or for worse literally till death do us part. And while McKern is, or I'll say number two is constantly speaking to number six as though he's a child. He'll say son, boy, a lot of the time. There is a real intimacy, particularly by the end, that is yes. not and authority. There's a, there's a, like, yeah. a uh, they, have an, they have an argument around here and six attacks number two and, and the butler knocks him out and number two goes, I'm beginning to like him. Like there is, there's a yes. real, there, there is a real, like, um, it's going beyond the, like, we're two sides of the same coin, you and I, to a real, uh, affection that it, earlier when in Chimes Big Ben, number two was like, ha ha, I love him, sense of humor. But right. here it's, it, it's, it's the intimacy, like you're saying, that comes from being stuck in a room with someone for a long time and having all your barriers. It's basically like, like, uh, like it, it, number two is like. You're going to go through Est, number six. You didn't want to. I don't want to. But that's yeah. what's going to happen right now. Um, so the uh, they keep running through these exercises. Six uh, gets to ride on a rocking exercises. horse. Exercises. They're, psych- they're six psychodramas. Yeah, the six psychodramas. He refuses to count to six. And then number two starts playing kind of syllable games to him. And they just keep repeating the word pop back to each other pop, for a little pop, bit. Pop, 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 pop. And that's something that the word pop, I'm not, you know, Rover is a bubble, like, oh. and things like that. And the, there's an early version of one of the episodes, I think it's Chimes Big Ben, where the end credit sequence is a little different. And that's the one, I think we might have talked about it, where like the wheels on the bicycle are the earth and then it becomes space and then the word pop appears really big. So this word pop has a has a real meaning to Patrick McGowan that isn't fully ever explicated, you know, in, right. the, in the show. But Well, I mean, you know, pop goes the weasel again is another sort of nursery rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the, I, I mean, I, I take it at its face to be about when Patrick McGowan keeps going, pop goes the weasel, pop, pop, pop. He's imagining his own, his own balloon that is his head popping yeah. and, and finally breaking. Then number two comes in with all these, you know, repetitions, pop, P-O-P, pop, protect, pop, protect other people. Mm-hmm. These weird uh, uh, initialisms that seem to be coming out of nowhere and i wonder if it's i wonder if that he stole that from uh from dr strange love where it's poe ope peace on earth uh and uh that kind of stuff purity of essence i wonder if that's i wonder if he kind of took that from there um in any case this is this is one of the places where the dialogue it really feels like a half-baked experimental west end theater from the 60s (laughs) yeah a little bit where they're just going to fill out pages with like here let's just let's just do a little improv you and me together (laughs) mirror me mirror me it doesn't matter there's an audience here we're just gonna do this pop pop goes the weasel pop you say things pop corn pop p-o-p pop pop it pop 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 that's right pop you said it pop (laughs) 
Paul? I didn't say it. Pop. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's I mean, pretty much the scene. But the after the pops, the uh, it starts. The situations start getting increasingly violent. Uh, now they're they're sparring part numbers. Number two is number six is boxing coach, and they're sparring partners. And right. number two is you're the champ. You're the champ. Why you why did you resign? And six punches him. Uh, they're fencing, and number two starts to yell at number six. Kill, kill, kill! You can't do it. You're a coward. And the the safety nub comes off of the end of number two's saber. Oh, no, number six's saber. That, and he kind of uh, excuse me. Uh, I got to stick up for the crossword uh, here. That, that's no saber. That's an epee. Oh, is that a pay? Sorry. The, uh, the but one of the, one he, of the top crossword words in the New York Times crossword puzzle. It's in there all <laughs> the, the only one I remember is it always says blank actor blank Morales. That's right. <laughs> that's uh, a favorite. That's, that's all. That's also like student at Yale. Um, but. <laughs> Also, uh, that may actually be a foil. Anyway, it's the long, sticky thing. Anyway, yeah. And he and he stabs number two, but only kind of cuts him a little bit. But things are getting increasingly violent. And for number two, even more than for number six, increasingly dangerous. Like, I think I, right. I, at this point, I start feeling like, oh, if this goes bad, number six is going to end up murdering number two. And number two knows that he's driving number six to the point where he's either going to break or he's going to kill him. Uh and now they end up in this uh, in this kind of cage within the embryo room that's a miniature apartment, uh, and they clean it up together, and they have meals together, uh, and they go through a job interview scenario. Right. Uh, Six is, is very nervous, and uh, he gets on a little moped <laughs> and, and drives over to a door where he interviews with number two as a boss. This incredible garden tractor. Yeah, and he goes, uh, and number two says, close the door, which I, I didn't even know they had seen Mad Men back then. Where, but uh, apparently they had because uh-huh. the famous Batman line, close the door, sit down, close the door. Uh, and uh, he's interviewing from a top, interviewing him for a top secret confidential job. And uh, he gets, he's ri- rides around a thing until the butler arrests him. And now number two is a judge behind a weird tinker toy contraption with lots of spinning wheels that, right. uh, that they're constantly and, uh, turning. Musk, they're not spinning on their own. Angelo Muscat's on a stool <laughs> as, the ju- as the judge them. is lecturing number six. For being a reckless driver on his garden tractor, having potentially killed a bunch of people. So yeah. That's the fantasy. Angelo Muscat as the butler is just every now and then spinning one of those little <laughs> construction toy wheels. I wonder whether that was his improvisation or whether McGowan made him do that. I don't know. I have to, maybe it was both. I have to assume McGowan, anything he could throw into that was like an inexplicable action. I have to, it seems like he was, he was happy to have. Um, but it seems like the, the, the idea is that uh, he's on trial for speeding, but to explain why it was okay, he has to explain what the mission he was on was, and eventually, and it doesn't it doesn't work. They're trying to get him to count to six, and he won't do it. Uh, it says two, four, five. He won't. He won't. It's it's a little bit like a serious version of the holy hand grenade grenade sequence in uh, in Holy Grail. <laughs> like, like, two, five, three, sir, three. Yeah, you know, everything is getting more and more abstract here. And there's so many lines that I made a note of that are so sort of obscure and suggestive without being clear. Like, number six is constantly saying, I'm good at figures. I'm rebelling against the figures. Why did you resign for peace? Peace of mind. Peace? Peace? What peace? You have peace of mind? Like, it's just, it gets, it get every time it comes down to number two finally saying again, why did you resign? I feel like. Come on, give it a rest. Aren't we beyond this now? The two of you are now imprisoned together, both of you going out of your minds. One of you has been brainwashed. 
number two even seems like he's probably been drugged to some degree. Yes, and apparently, according to Wikipedia, Liam McKern had some kind of either nervous breakdown or a heart attack during the production of this episode. It was this that, wildly intense thing. So every yeah. time they came, brought it down to this mundane, we want to know why you resigned. I'm like, we're beyond that now. We're in a <laughs> sub-basement. You are taking turns locking yourselves into... A, a shipping container <laughs> yeah. that is made out to be like an apartment that you share. Like there's yeah. so much weird stuff going on here. I'm not sure how much of it is profound and how much of it is just like is ridiculous, but who cares? Well, that to be devil's advocate, you could say, and I don't think this is necessarily it. You could say that number two is a prisoner of what he thinks his mission is that it has yes. gone far beyond that, but he's impri- he's under the, He's imprisoned by this idea that the only thing that matters is why he resigned and he has to figure it out, even though you're right. What's going on between the two of them is so much deeper and so much more intense than why number six quit his job, basically. Like I, you know? I, I noticed that Alex Cox, the filmmaker Alex Cox, uh-huh. wrote a book about the prisoner. Another piece of research that I could have done that I didn't do. <laughs> and he also apparently was haunted by the fact, haunted by these two episodes and wanted to make it all make sense. And he's one of the proponents that if you watch them in their original intended order, everything in these episodes makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I bet you there's a whole part that you could, you could break down every line in this episode and find meanings within meanings within meanings. It's that abstract at this point. Yeah. You know, you're opening a door to go have a job interview in a room that has no walls. Like there's just a frame of a door there, <laughs> but there is a very solid prison in the background of all of this black box abstract theater set pieces. And the, and it is this, what we learn is a shipping container within a, with a very domestic apartment inside that has bars in front of it. And that is, and as, and number two explains, it's completely detachable. It is a, it is its own separate world that you could live in. It has waste disposal, he says, and all that. Like you could, uh, but it's, yeah, but there's a literal jail there and it comes in, uh, yeah, and they, they make a joke about it where he's he's pouring drinks, and and number six says, "Oh, built-in bars." It's like yeah, there's a bar, and then there are these bars. And <laughs> let me just say, as much as I want to live in Port Marion and be kept there and have my identity erased by a mysterious cabal of un- unknown authority, I do not want to be in that shipping container. No, no, I found yeah, that thing to much. be truly, truly upsetting because what. When you when you think about this as the embryo room as going from childhood to adulthood and ultimately you know the the adulthood is encapsulated in this domestic living room dining room kitchen very very you know it's not super cool modern the way no, number 6 apartment much, is it looks like a traditional old like, yeah, like kind of sh- like a shabby english flat yeah yeah which is the life that you know Actors in particular are terrified of getting trapped in, you know, like this domestic jail. Well, and there's something where he very, will die, where he will die. You know? Yeah. And there's something very kind of revolutionary about the idea of like, there's this weird place. Here's the prison cell. It's your house. You, the person watching this, your house is the prison. Like you live in a jail. And but at this and on top of that, it looks like a set from a traditional British sitcom or American right. sitcom. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah, like yeah. that yeah. that television is a jail and the fourth wall is the bars that he, Patrick McGowan is is trying to push out at what's possible within this form that Ooh, he's in. I bet you Alex Cox didn't even get that insight down. <laughs> Take that, Cox. 
I love that. That's incredible. Yeah, it does. Because in a three camera sitcom or whatever, mm-hmm. the apartment is it's opened up and flattened like a dollhouse. Yes. Just like this thing is. It's like it's just it's almost two dimensional. Oh, and the bars are right there where the TV screen would be. Where the screen where the cameras would be. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Like and and at the end, McGuin very much by this point, I think, was pushing against what he felt were the limits imposed by him uh, by ITV and Lou Grade, his and his, you know his producers basically, uh, in terms of what he was capable of, uh, budget and contract wise. But anyway, they're in there. Uh, what it gets to a point where Six gives number two a knife and is like, "Kill me, kill me," and he lies down and says, "Kill me." He won't defend himself. So number two kind of lets him out at that point. I think he's he's realized right. that. The, the therapy, the talk therapy, or the role therapy, has not gone to where you wanted to go. Now they get to do the part where you were talking about, where they're pre- pre- pretending to be bombers, pilots in the war, uh, and and the butler's doing so much work creating the, the context for this. Uh, then suddenly, six is a prisoner of war, and number two is the is the soldier interrogating him. He still won't talk. Uh, and then it goes <laughs> finally. Uh, number six counts down, and he says six, and then goes, "I'm hungry." And he goes, "What would you like? Supper." And, it's like, and then cut, cut. Then there's a cut. There's an ad break there, isn't there? Yeah. Then there's a, then it blacks out for a commercial, <laughs> and it's so by this strange. point. And when we come back, by this point, number two is a wreck. Number six seems to be more in control now. He's he's gaining the upper hand. Literally, and, the the script gets flipped, and he is now interrogating number two. Number yes. Number two is lying down on a table. Yeah. As though he is number six's supper to devour, mm-hmm. and he's asking him. Why did? Why are you here? What is this all about? And number two and, spills the beans. Well, and the number supper, six says the supper is the beans of information. <laughs> uh, human beans, as as Rorschach says. That's right. Uh, the and he says, yeah, the, uh, this is supposed to gain your trust and respect, so that you'll spill it all. And number and but he, it's not working. And number six says to him, Why don't you resign? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> You're very good at it. <laughs> and I love that as a way of turning around the question. The question yeah. for number two is, why, why did, did you, resign? you resign? And number six question, why don't you resign? Why I did it, why don't you? And they have drinks together, and as the butler plays the organ, <laughs> and now it's, boy, they, oh and they, it almost seems like they've come to a- you bathroom uh, breaks? They had to have had bathroom breaks. I mean, they have waste disposal. They, they had know, to have- like, does the butler get five just to- th- scroll through his phone and check reddit or <laughs> oh you know whatever. that he's a, he's like a parent where he's like i have to use the bathroom he really doesn't need to use the bathroom he just needs to sit somewhere by himself yeah, yeah he's just got to go read read uh what, what like bino or something one of the <laughs> yeah British 2000 comic. ad or something yeah, yeah. yeah there we go that's better uh and uh the they and uh it's almost like they're they've kind of reached an equilibrium between the two of them until they realize there's five minutes left there's only five minutes left in the thing that's when uh Number two uh, starts to get a little more frantic, and number six—that's when he learns the mini apartment is detachable, and he locks number two in it. Now, very literally, number six is the jailer, and number two has been jailed. That's right. And number two is like, "I'm the boss here," and six goes, "No." Now it goes, "Number one is the boss," and they have what I refer to in my notes as a semi-coherent verbal joust, which I don't really remember <laughs> the yeah. specifics of, even having watched this a couple nights ago. <laughs> uh, until I finally, just wa- I just watched it a couple hours ago. <laughs> until finally. Uh, Number six lets number two out, and he tells him he's free, and uh, taunts him with Humpty Dumpty. There's one minute to go. Two is frantic. He has failed. 
Yeah. Uh, and he does. Uh, he has not managed to break six. If anything, he's been broken. Six is counting down. And, literally, uh, literally, Patrick McGowan counts down from 60. Yes, it takes a while. Yeah. And you know um, what? Something I noticed, for a guy who doesn't want to say six, there's a lot of sixes when you count down from 60. That's true. Well, at this point, it does, he can say six. That's he the thing. Six, he can say at whatever point, he he's, wants. He's owned it. He's he's right. reclaimed the number. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean anything to him anymore. It's no longer the label number two is forcing on him. Now he can taunt number two with this thing that number two was forcing on him, saying, yeah, I'll take it. You have no power over me. Call right. me six. I don't, whatever. I don't care. I'll say six. I'll six it up. Uh, and he's also, and he's bringing he's also saying, back. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very much so. And this is when I think, uh, right. Uh, so there's two is pleading for him to answer the question and six is counting out and just and saying, die, die. I think it's six saying die. It's, it's, I, kinda, I was interested. I'm interested that you also clear. had a question about that. Yeah. Cause you never see six. It's a really, I think a, camera's saying it and it doesn't sound a, like no, him and it doesn't sound like him. And what I noticed was, because I had a note here, it's like, it has to be number six chanting, die, 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 as number two drinks, drink after drink. Yeah. Eventually causing himself to die. And and there's this, this is this this incredible kind of bobbing, floating, extreme close-up of Leo McKern that right. I remember so well. And it's like, I mean, from the first time I watched this episode, this shot always struck me how he looks so destroyed. You know, his eyes oh. kind of, you notice that Leo McKern's eyes don't quite point in the same direction. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you notice he, that, that that's always true. And I yeah. don't know to what degree he has power over that one drifting eye, mm-hmm. the way uh, Bill Skarsgård, uh, Pennywise, you know, he can move his eyes independently. Oh, I didn't know that. That's why he's such a creepy feller. Yeah. Makes him such a funny clown. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but like McK- McKern, you knew that he had a little bit of a lazy eye and yes, trying to bed. But now that. I guess it's his right eye is really going all over the place. Yeah, and and we're so it's close very up upsetting. in his face. Yeah, it's very upsetting. He's so sweaty, and he's unsteady, and the camera is unsteady. And finally, and yeah, it's unclear quite who's saying die. Maybe it's the butler at this point who knows where his bread is buttered that number two is lost. I don't know. But uh, he collapses and as, is essentially dead, even though when you see his body, I think he breathes a little bit. But what are you going to do? It's a, it's a British TV show from the 60s. I'll tell you something. One of the times I've been most uncomfortable on a set, I've never had a lamp plonked onto my face for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But I did have to play dead on the, on the series finale of Delocated, the great uh, John Glazer. Mm-hmm. The uh, Adult Swim show. Adult Swim show, which is fantastic if you haven't watched it. It's really, really, really funny. And in the in the final episode, I play a reality talk show host who's hosting a reunion of all of the actors or all of the characters. And then we're the studio is invaded by these terrorists and I get shot to death and I have to lie there on the ground <laughs> while another character gives a monologue over my body. Mm-hmm. And the room is full of fake gun smoke. And I could not keep my eyes closed. I could not keep I couldn't I couldn't play dead to save my life. <laughs> that's that's like if I were literally playing dead to save my life, the person who was trying to kill me were like, you're still alive. Now I'm going to really kill you. <laughs> and I have to shoot you for real. And the other actor was just like, why don't you just keep your eyes closed? I'm like, this stings so much. Like, I, <laughs> I had I had it was really, ex- it's really hard to do. It's really hard I to had do. not that exact situation. But luckily, so there was a there was a Daily Show bit once where 
someone said John had a Napoleon complex. So he wanted to do a bit where he walks out dressed as Napoleon and I am his, I was dressed as like an 18th century footman, early 19th century footman. And I hand, and uh, I hand him the reins of a horse and then put a gun to my head and to hear a bang and I fall to the ground. And then you just see my legs off camera while John is getting on this horse or talking or something. Right. And it was like, luckily most of my body was off camera. So I could just lie there, but yeah. I was lying right behind the back hooves of a horse. And it was really scary. Because oh, no. I was like, I was like, if John startles this horse for whatever reason, I'm dead. Like this hoof is going to crush my skull. But luckily, everything was okay. Did I get paid for that role? Of course, I didn't. Right, it was the Daily not. Show. No, no, no. <laughs> I was already on staff as a, like a production assistant. That's what you were going to say. What a lot of people don't know is I breathe through my ankles, and people could see me see me breathing. You could see the pores in my ankles opening and closing. Yeah. But I wanted to quickly get back to die, 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 because die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu, die, anu. That's some Jewish humor for the Jewish listeners. <laughs> Happy Hanukkah. Uh, I wanted to, but also... <laughs> if, number, if, number, if number two had only made number six into a baby, that would have been enough. Dianu, that would have been enough. If number two had only had number six pretend to be a bomber pilot, Dianu, that would have been enough. Anyway, so forth. More Jewish humor. <laughs> so, I found that, like, I, as I said, I was, I wouldn't say pleased, but reassured a little bit when you're like, I'm not sure that it's number six chanting die. Uh-huh. He's not on screen. It's a very cruel thing to do. Yes, it's much crueler it, than he's... We've seen him be dismissive or uh, non-empathetic or kind of like nasty to people or or oblivious to them. But I, I don't think we've ever seen him be this objectively cruel before in the and, series that I remember. And, and, and it doesn't quite sound like him. And I watched with the subtitles on as I do everything because I can't... There's no, there's no shame in having an auditory processing disorder. You no, can be a senator. All. You can definitely be a senator if you have one. But I, I can't follow dialogue anymore. Die, 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 dialogue. <laughs> and in the captions, that line is credited to number two. Hmm. Isn't that strange? Yeah. And when he's later, clearly not saying it because he's on screen. No, it's not. not it's not it. him at all. It's not him at all. But then l- later in Fallout, which we'll talk about next episode in your time, listener. Uh, there is a moment where they're showing footage of Leo McKern as number two laughing. And the captions credit the laughing to number six. Now, this has to be an error, right? But yeah. it really, to me at least, enhanced this feeling of these two are now so entwined together, there's no pulling them apart. Yes. And some, you know, number two is dying in in this in, you know, like, okay, there there were authority figures and they were trading who is the authority. But when you have two two people who are intimates yelling at each other over drinks in a domestic setting, like this shipping container with this apartment in it, mm-hmm. it, it has a whole who's afraid of Virginia Woolf feeling to it that is very upsetting and very domestic. And, and, and ultimately... It's very confusing as to who is who and who is the, who you know, not 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 merely who's in charge, but which one of them is which. Yeah. And of course, we are about to get into one of the biggest identity switch questions of the entire series in the next episode. But we leave this episode with number two on the floor of the prison that was meant for number six. And the supervisor comes in. Mm-hmm. Old Baldy Steel Glasses. <laughs> we should say who that actor is. His name is Peter Swanwick or Swanick. Yes, 
Peter Swanwick. Or and he Swanwick. was in he was in a a, lot, a bunch of uh, TV in the sixties in England. Uh, according to Wikipedia, yeah, he had a lot of small parts. He's in the African Queen in a small part. A lot of British movies. Devil on Horseback, Conflict of Wings, The Delavine Affair, The Cold Ditch Story. You know all of these. The Love Match. <laughs> sure. Oh, he's. You know what? When you said Devil on Horseback, I got it confused with The Devil Rides Out, a movie he is in. It says according to Wikipedia, which I have seen, and that's that's a movie with Christopher Lee where someone shows up at a friend's house thinking they had dinner plans that night, and he walks in, and his friend is holding a satanic mass, and it's and I just I always loved that setup that like you could show up at your friend's house on the wrong night and find out they're a satanist. Like otherwise, things were fine. The Devil Rides Out, nineteen sixty eight, on Wikipedia it says he plays satanist uncredited, yeah. uncredited, yeah. Uh, and then he passed away very shortly after this was filmed. He was only mm-hmm. 46 years old. I think he's very good. And it's never really clear. I mean, he's subordinate to number two, I guess. He is subordinate. Well, in any way, you know, the hierarchy of the village is never totally clear. He's somehow a subordinate of number two. But he, I, I, he's almost, he's kind of like deep state, you know. Right. He's a career, he's a career village bureaucrat. No matter who's number two, the supervisor is secure in his job. And so when number two dies, the supervisor is not like, He's not a, he's not promoted, and he's not like what's going on. Number six says, "Take me to number." He goes, uh, he goes, "I want number one." And Stuart says, "I'll take you there," and then they leave, and that's the end of the. And you see number two's body again. That's the end. So it's uh, and the last thing you see is this the darkened, silent embryo chamber or embryo room, uh, whatever it's called, with that rocking horse still rocking. And there's something so very creepy about that rocking horse still moving in this very otherwise incredibly still unmoving room where you know a dead body is lying uh and again the, and then we end with the classic patrick mcguin's face trying to get out of your screen and then animated bars crash in front of him to, right because he's still imprisoned one of the things that struck me first of all is that this conversation made me like this episode a lot more okay because i did find it to be very is tendentious a word i don't, I don't know it up. full of tendons Tendentious means uh, no, intending to promote a particular cause or point of view, especially a controversial one. That's not what I mean. Tedious is the word. Tedious. I'm yeah, it's for. it's well. Let's say tendentious is a con- combination of tedious and pretentious. Which yes, this episode could be. I I have to admit, going into these last two episodes, I hadn't seen them in years, and I was like, I remember loving these, but also finding them a little hard to understand and also repetitive. You found Fallout to be hard to understand. <laughs> when I when I was uh, when I was younger, huh, weird. It seemed pretty clear what was happening in that one. <laughs> oh, okay. well, we'll talk uh, about that in the next episode. We'll talk about but, the next one. But yeah. I remember. But my I was kind of worried going into it, being like, "Am I going to watch these and realize that thing that happens a lot when you watch something that you watched and you loved a lot as a young person, where you go, oh, this is kind of this is the way I feel kind of when I watch some of Terry Gilliam's stuff now.' To be honest, where I'm like, oh, yeah. this kind of feels like pretentious and simplistic in a way that I didn't intend it to, and kind of laughable, not in the right way. Whereas I, watching this, I was like, "Yeah, there are flaws in this, but I actually, but these two episodes, I found, if anything, I think I was saying earlier, more powerful than I did when I first watched them." And so this episode, I think, seeing it again and uh, multiple times, and this time really being able to focus on it and not watching it for plot, but just picking up on the moments, was a better way for me to watch it than anything yeah, else. Yeah, my feeling, my feeling was, I made a note here to ask you. Is this episode brilliant or had they reached the point where all they had left was mere inscrutability? <laughs> well, I'll, I, here's what I'll say to that. I think 
we were talking about comparing, we were comparing him to Jack Kirby's work earlier. And I think it's kind of similar where the brilliance and the kind of bonkers, corny, uh, nonsensicalness are so tightly intertwined that you kind of can't, I don't think you can have one without the other. I think yeah. a version, a version of this episode that is kind of slick and perfectly well told and, and nonstop entertaining and not inscrutably pretentious, I don't think would be as powerful as what it is, was what this is, because these two episodes feel so much to me like you are getting a direct television download straight from Patrick McGowan's brain. Like he wrote and directed yeah. these episodes and they feel very much like the work of someone of a, they have a real specific voice behind them. A single brain. I dare say a very unique brain. Yes, a ve- very, you know, and an even extra if it, very unique brain. Even if his creativity is sometimes kind of bull in a china shop, slamming itself around, kind of breaking the points that it was trying to make, you know, at times, it's still. I, 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 all I can say is force. The force and intensity of it is so is so powerful to me, and it's one of those things where, like, when he say what a lot of what he's saying in this is like. Authority figures are always trying to control you, man. Like yeah, your whole life like, is your oh. life is a prisoner, and it's. But the more inscrutable inscrutable you make it, sometimes the more powerful it is because you have to dig out the meaning, and it you know it brings it to life in you in a way that if Patrick Moon just stopped the TV and was like, "Hey, everybody, what I'm trying to say with this is, <laughs> life is full of authority figures who are trying to control you, man." Like anyway, back yeah. to the show. Well, and of the, the so I I having spoken about it i've i've come to like it a lot more and i think that a lot of my reaction my bad reaction to it aside from the fact that it sounded like cut rate tom stoppard a lot of the time <laughs> was by the way everyone who has a chance to go see leopold stott it's an incredible play oh, i really want to see that i hope it comes to la yeah i'm sure it will but it was grubby and upsetting and yes the this was really you know, seeing Patrick McGoon slurp on an ice cream cone is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the psychosexual <laughs> stuff that these two guys put themselves through and put each other through and culminating in this domestic squabble that ends with Leo McKern dead on the floor. Someone, perhaps our hero, number six, yelling, die, 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 which is, of course, is a pre-echo of the repeated I, I, I that will come up in Fallout. Mm-hmm. Put a make make a note in your in your journal, Alex Cox, if you're following along. <laughs> you might have to write another book. But also, one of the reasons that I found it hard to watch this show, to the point that there are episodes that I have not seen, is that the show is defined by the main character's rigidity and maintaining of his integrity. Mm-hmm. But by definition, they want one thing and he doesn't want to give it to them, so it's static. Like, he's not changing. Yes. He's holding a line. And that's hard for a main character to, to be defined by his or her or their unchangingness. And one of the things I noticed was number six goes off mission. At least it seems that way at the end of this episode. Because when... The supervisor comes to collect him, having won the Battle of the Embryo Room. The ultimate, what was it? Mindfuck absolute? Yeah, degree of and, and, degree and, absolute. That, and Battle of the Embryo Room is such a perfect Jack Kirby issue title. Like, <laughs> For sure. Miracle Man, Miracle Man seen many things from the Omnicrazy Chamber to, to, the, to, the, to, to the murder dogs of Beetlejuice, but can he escape the, embryo, yeah. the Battle of the Embryo Room? I mean, I think they even had a clip of him of him saying what he was going to do, that his mission is to get off this island and then come back 
Yes. Or and, you get out of the village and then come back and burn it down. And just yeah, and destroy it. And so but when he when, when he wins, he doesn't say, Let me out. He says, he says I want to see number one. Yeah. I want or to see number it. one. Yeah. Right. Which is where we go when we get to our next episode and final episode until Alex Cox writes a novel a, no, a, a continuation novel of this podcast. <laughs> Fallout coming next on Be Potting You. Any final thoughts, Elliot Kalen? I'm super excited to talk about Fallout in the next episode, but final thoughts about this one. I'm glad I could kind of inadvertently turn you around on this one. This episode, it is lumpy, it is unpleasant, but I think that's part of the... Hey, what, it's as lumpy as Leo McKern in a tight turtleneck. I, I would never, I would never <laughs> turtleneck shame him that way, but you know, but that's but uh, the... I love I think... Leo McKern in all his lumps. It's lumpier than Leo McKern's face, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that guy's got a beautiful bulbous nose and yeah, interesting yeah, cheeks. And Yes, he was, he was, he's sculpted admirably. Yeah. Uh, but the, I think that the... Um, Part of the power of this episode is you are seeing, you're you're seeing a kind of slickness and gloss and excitement and fun removed from the show. Yes, and it becomes a very unpleasant experience. And it's not number six has to engage in a game of cat and mouse with number two in the episode we call you know here kitty right. kitty. Like right. instead, this is it's a fairy tale. It's an unpleasant fairy tale, like the old old fairy tales. And it right. and the characters really get hurt in it. And so Bringing it back around. A, a, mm-hmm. a, a, an orphan's finger is chopped off to use as a key in a magic castle. <laughs> Something that happens in a fairy tale. <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't, it should. Neil I Gaiman, are you listening? You should yeah. do that. You should use that. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of fairy tales, this is dark, and it is happens underground <laughs> in a dark cavern. We're not in Port Marion anymore, folks. And next time, we're going even deeper into the bowels of the village. Mm-hmm. We're going to a new sub, 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 sub basement where we're going to meet some surprising new friends or let me say uh, uh, annoying new friend. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of hip talking uh, counterculture uh, stovepipe hat wearing <laughs> chimney sweep guy. Yeah. Spiritual singing uh, yeah, rebel like, with a veil around his neck. Yeah, that's right. Like a, like an undertaker from Godspell or something. <laughs> he always strikes me. We'll talk about this in the episode. He always strikes me as a grown up Lucky Charms leprechaun. <laughs> Plus the return of a lumpy old friend. Spoiler. <laughs> Until then, you are... Number six. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) You are, no, you are, you are, you are not a number. You are, you are a free man. You are Elliot Kalen. And I, I don't know who I am anymore. We've been, we've been trapped in this embryo room for long enough in this power struggle. (laughs) Somewhere between a a courtroom and a, and a, a lover's quarrel. So what is my identity? I'm going to I'm going to uh, give you the number of John. You'll be number John. I am number John. <laughs> Hodgman, that is. And until next time, I will say, and you will join me in saying one, two. Speaking of numbers, one, two, three, four, be- five, six. six. Be, be potting you. Be, be potting you. Sorry. <laughs> Let me do that again. Sorry, I was going to say be seeing you. Hold on. Here, we'll count off. One, two, three, four, five, six. Be Be potting potting you. you.